0: It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 98, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. Mike Nolan raises about five acres of vegetables at Mountain Roots Produce in Mancus, Colorado. With a focus on storage crops, Mike has patched together a market in his rural marketplace that includes restaurants, grocery stores, schools, and CSA members in the Four Corners area of Colorado. Farming in Mancus for the last seven years, Mike has recently brought Mountain Roots Produce into profitability and no longer has to work off the farm to make ends meet. We dig into the details of Mike's operation, including how he has structured his tractor scale farming operation for growing crops that are planted a limited number of times a year, and why he decided to start farming with a business model based on these limited succession crops. Mike shares his challenges with weed control, how he's used local resources to store his root crops with limited capital investment, and the changes he is making to prepare for the new marketing realities that he expects to encounter as the Food Safety Modernization Act begins to take effect. Mike also gives us an overview of water rights in the West and how that influences the structure of his farming operation. Plus, Mike and his girlfriend, Mindy Perkovich of Early Bird Gardens, recently joined forces in Mancus, and Mike shares the details and realities of making the transition from a solo operator to being part of a partnership. I had a lot of fun talking to Mike, and I hope you enjoyed this interview as much as I enjoyed making it for you. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is sponsored by Vermont Compost Company. Founded by organic crop-growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high-quality compost and compost-based living soil mixes for certified organic plant production, vermontcompost.com. And by Farmer's Web, making it simple for farms to work with wholesale buyers such as restaurants, retail stores, and schools. Farmer's Web software streamlines your wholesale operations, making it easier to work with your buyers and with more buyers overall, farmersweb.com. Mike Nolan, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Chris. I'd like to start off by having you tell us about Mountain Roots Produce. uh, How you got there, where you're located, what you're growing, what you're selling. Cool, that sounds great. Um, Mountain Roots Produce, I started the business
1: about seven years ago. Uh, The farm is located in southwest Colorado in a little town called Mancus, where the valley right to the east of Mesa Verde National Park. We predominantly focus on storage crops, fruit vegetables, so potatoes, storage cabbage, storage onion. Um, We do do some kind of fresh market stuff, a little bit of salad greens, uh, hothouse tomatoes, and some other hot crops like zucchini and green beans in the summertime. Um, We predominantly sell to mainly wholesale markets and a CSA. We sell to about half a dozen restaurants in the Telluride region and about 10 places in the Durango area. And we do a 50 member CSA up in Telluride and another 30-member CSA here in the Max Valley.
0: And those are those are your CSA members, right? Or are you, are you selling to a CSA?
1: Um, those are our, our CSA members. I farm with my girlfriend. Um, she moved down here this year. So we do all the work up in Telluride for CSA. And then I started another CSA with another farm um, just down the road. And we do just a small 30. We did 24 members this year. We're going to up it to 30 to 40 next year. Um, and that's kind of an experimental model. Um, my friend Kelly focuses on more leafy greens, more perishable items, high succession items. And I kind of focus on the storage crops, single plantings. Um, so we figured it'd be kind of a good experiment to see like instead of one farm doing all the work for a CSA, if we can kind of meet in the middle. Um, and that model turned out to be surprisingly easy compared to just running a full-blown csa by ourselves
0: well and i like how you've split that up not just crop by crop but kind of thinking of it as, as almost a production model that you do you do the the storage crops or the limited succession crops and she's doing the ones that you're turning over all the time that seems like a really smart division
1: yeah it seems to work and it was nice because we didn't neither of us um wanted to dive into a csa by ourselves. Um, my girlfriend and I do one here now, she'd been running a CSA up in Ridgeway, Colorado for years. She moved down this past year, about a year ago. And so we're still running that CSA together up in the Telluride area. Um, so this other one came out of just kind of an experiment and it's, it's worked out really well. Um, it just kind of means we don't have to go out of our growing comfort zone, um, in order to make things happen.
0: Now. Mancus, Colorado is located down in the Four Corners area, right? That is correct, yeah. I always get out the Google Maps and, and look at where, where I'm doing my interview, and there's not a lot of green where you are.
1: No, there's not. I mean, it's, there's quite a bit of production out here. It's predominantly alfalfa hay, cattle um there is some corn there's dry beans um most of the land in our county and region is dry land um we do have some of the highest pinto bean production and winter wheat production in the state and the country um but that's all dry land the irrigated land is relatively limited in this region
0: and obviously when we're talking the the kind of desert-like region that you're in you're on irrigated land right
1: Oh, yeah. I could not do what I'm doing without irrigation. I mean, out here, you don't necessarily buy land, you buy water.
0: How many acres are you farming?
1: We had just shy of five acres in production this year. Um, I bought 13 acres three years ago this past August, and our weed pressure is... Phenomenal. (laughs) Um, So what we decided to do this fall is we plowed up another three acres on the property and we're going to start rotating the whole farm within that so we can have portions of the farm that are in cover crop for, you know, a 12 to 16 month period. Um, and working with cover crops that can help us manage and suppress weeds without having to actually come in and weed it all season. So we're going to drop down to about four acres of production next year, but have about eight acres total that are plowed up. So we'll have four in cover, four in production.
0: And you're also at a fairly high elevation. Yeah, we're at 7,200 feet. Wow. A pretty short season?
1: (laughs) Um, It can be. I mean – climate change has kind of made it really weird. Um, it traditionally, when I first moved here, the rule of thumb was, you know, your frost free safe dates were June 1st to mid September. Um, and you, we tend to get still a late, fr- uh, a last frost sometime in late May. Um, people have had frost July 4th. Um, and then our frost dates in the fall this year was pretty normal. We got a killing frost uh, third week of September, and then it warmed up again, and we didn't really start freezing hard again until uh, around Halloween or just after. So we try to function on kind of like a 100 to 120 day safe growing window, um, which kind of makes things a little bit wild. I mean, we'll, we have like when planting hot crops, like winter squash, zucchini, green beans. Um, those kind of crops, we kind of have this 10 day window of when we need to get them in, um, in order to get them to actually get into production at the right time in order to get, and also to get them to finish off at the right times. So things like winter squash. I mean, you eat frost out the last week in May, you plant your winter squash right at the beginning of June. If you plant it 10 days after that, you might not get a crop out of it by the time fall rolls around.
0: Although that's one of the advantages of farming in a desert climate, right, is you can pretty much pick the day that you want to plant and be in the field doing it.
1: Yeah, pretty much. We don't deal with all that much uh, issues of being locked out of the field due to moisture or anything like that. We do have uh, summer monsoon rains, which can be a little bit tricky here and there, Um, but for the most part, no it's kind of like go time may and june tend to be pretty high and dry and our monsoon season tends to start eh, around july 4th ish sometimes depends on the year though
0: so when you say monsoon season i mean i always i always think of world geography class and and they talked about the monsoons in india where it would rain for a month you're not looking at that kind of thing are you
1: um it it's I've it's been different all over the place. I mean, we've had I've definitely had years, 5 6 years ago where it was raining about a tenth of an inch to 2 tenths of an inch every other day in the afternoon. Um it functions pretty traditional. It's the clouds build up in the high country. Um they start to fall out from the high country down lower in the early afternoon and then sometimes we get some moisture, sometimes we don't. Um So, and that lasts for about, you know, four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks. Um, It's kind of been interesting being at this elevation for the past six, seven years now and watching how the climate seems to be changing. And it's not really that we're, it's just more that it's getting weirder. It's getting more extreme. Like our rain events will be... Uh, the space in between them will be further apart, um, but they'll be more extreme when we get them. I mean, we had uh, weather come in two Mays ago, and our annual precip is about 12 inches. And we got almost eight inches of rain in three weeks in May. Um, and that type of moisture in our soil basically turns things to adobe brick. And it made the season challenging for a lot of people for that whole year because of those rainstorms. Wow
0: yeah you're doing a system that's that's dominated by these storage crops. How did you get into that like what what prompted you to go that way as a market farmer instead of going in a different direction? I mean everybody now is is all is focused on you know let's do salad greens let's maximize our gross dollars per acre. You don't tend to grow yeah. you don't tend to maximize your gross on potatoes and carrots
1: no not at all um i I'd like to call it the salad mix burnout um <laughs> For the most part, I mean, I'm curious to watch a lot of the new growers that are showing up doing the really high density greens on a small acreage, how they feel about how their bodies feel and how they feel about doing it in five, six years. Um, I kind of did the salad mix thing for a few years um, and my body just couldn't handle it. And I didn't feel like the profit margins were really there. So I was farming about seven, eight years ago down in New Mexico with some friends and they had been doing the same thing. They've been growing, you know, basically farmer's market crops. It was lots of salad mix, lots of spinach, lots of bunch of carrot, bunch of beet, you know, pretty traditional farmer's market stands, you know, hundreds of pounds a week of salad mix and other things and hundreds of bunches a week of carrots and beets and the like. And they just basically got burnt out on it. It was one of those things where those things became so labor intensive and so time consuming. Um, it felt like they were making money, but if they actually calculated in, you know, their seed costs all their time in the field, managing multiple successions at any given time, all the irrigation management, they didn't feel like they were, just because they were getting 8 to $10 a pound at market, they didn't feel like they were actually seeing that 8 to $10 a pound. So the year I worked with them, they started to kind of flip their model, and they just went to single planting of an acre of carrot and a single planting of an acre of beet and a single planting of an acre of rutabaga and parsnip and purple top turnip and golden globe turnip. Um, they upped their winter squash production. And what I kind of saw with them is that the amount of stress on the farm and the management, all that got simple, uh, simpler and less. Um, And it seemed like they actually were doing better financially because they weren't uh, stretched so thin trying to manage all the high succession crops. Um, And also watching them go to market with those crops, they were able to, basically show up at the Santa Fe farmer's market with 400 bunches of carrot at a really reasonable price and really watch them move and same with beets. And they would bring trailer loads of winter squash. And because their management was simpler, they were, they didn't have to charge, you know, three, four or $5 a bunch for some of these crops. Um, and they're able to move a lot more volume. So I kind of took that model and adjusted it for some of the market demands here and started to focus on, you know, the two of the main crops we do is potatoes and uh, a Yukon type potato, and then red storage cabbage. I sell a lot to the school district around here. And a lot of the cabbage goes to uh, a Taqueria Zia Taqueria over in Durango that has two stores and they run through about 400 pounds of cabbage a week. Um, yeah, it's great. And, it's one of those things where it's like, you know, I do all my starts at once, I plant at once, I keep it irrigated, weeded a few times, it all gets harvested within like a couple day period, it all gets put in storage. And then all I need to do is go grab things out of storage. Um, As time goes on, I do have to process them a little bit as outer leaves start to not look so pretty. Um, and then just deliver. There's no, you know, I don't wash them. I don't really overhandle them. Um, and it's nice because in the, in this climate, you know, you only have that hundred, 120 days. Like I'm not dealing with a ton of row cover. I'm not trying to fight the weather and fight the extremes that we have out here. And I'm able to sell cabbage all the way from August until I think should be selling out, I think in the next week or two. So it brings me income on the farm when most other farms in this region don't have any income coming
0: in at all. Because at 7,200 feet, by this time in December, it's pretty darn cold.
1: Yeah, we've had negatives. We're in the single digits here and there. Um, We haven't had as much snow as we'd like, but yeah, it's cold. We do have stuff in the greenhouse still going a little bit just for personal. And we just finished a fall CSA up in Telluride uh, two days ago. Or yesterday actually. Um, but yeah, this is we're pretty much locked out. The ground is relatively frozen. Um everything's cover crop for the winter and you you can't do anything outside, even in a greenhouse right now. I mean, unless you planted it in August or September. You know, daylight is so short that you won't even be able to pull a crop out until March, April.
0: So tell me about your production system for the storage crops. What are you? Are you on a BCS scale? Have you tractored up? Kind of walk us through how you're doing that.
1: We are a tractor scale. Um, I have a Farmall 140 in 1964, I believe. Um, and so I use that for bed shaping, um, hilling of potatoes, some field cultivation, um, and I have a John Deere 730, um, 1959, that I use. Um, let's see, for soil prep, I run what they call a Vibershank through the field, which is it's a it's about ten feet wide. And it's got all these kind of shanks on there with uh, little sweeps. And what that allows me to do is I can come in with my cover crop in the spring, um, which is usually rye or triticale with some sort of, sometimes a field pea mixed in there and sometimes purple hairy vetch mixed in there. And depending on the type of winter moisture we have, that could be eight inches tall when I go to uh, turn it into the ground, or it could be two to three feet tall, depending on the type of spring we have. Um... So I come in and I mow that. I run the Vibershank with through it, which goes below any sort of pan I have and kind of lifts up the roots. And then I run a disc through the field with that John Deere. And then I come in and I shape all the beds over the course of a day or two through the, throughout the whole field. Um, and then kind of let all the cover crop break down for a couple of weeks, and then we start planting. We usually start planting onions and the like as early as we can get in in May. Um, onions and leeks, um, fava beans during that time as well. And then we do our, a lot of our brassica plantings mid May and then get in on our, uh, hot crops late May, early June. And then the other thing I've learned is the things with carrots and beets. Um, even though the daytime temps are really good, um, our, it takes a while for our soil temps to get where they need to be for things to really germinate. So we're going to start to wait a little bit longer to plant things like carrots, beets, parsnip, turnip, all that kind of stuff, because we can plant it in the middle of May. That something like a carrot might have a 14-day, 16, 18-day germination, as opposed to if I wait till sometime in June, you know they'll be popping up. They'll be starting to tail within five, six days and be up within 10 to 12. Um, so, kind of run things like that. And so, it's just all big plantings. This year, we planted about 4,000 head of cabbage. We did about, let's see, I think 1,800 pounds of seed potatoes. Um, we pulled out uh, three or 4,000 pounds of carrot and beet throughout the whole season. Um, we still have a few thousand pounds of rutabaga in the walk-in. So, if you want me to mail you any, I can.
0: Are you using fairly specialized equipment for doing things like the seeding and the transplanting or
1: yeah specialized equipment, so no, not really. um all the direct seating is done with the Planet Junior that I bought on Craigslist about eight years ago. Um, we've tried the yang seeder, um and either I don't know how to use it properly or I don't like it, and I can't really <laughs> tell and I can't really tell and to be honest what i what I don't like is all the plastic parts like I just don't I don't trust'em like the Planet junior. It's not a precision cedar, but it's weighted well. It's all metal. There's a little bit of plastic on the hopper. Um, but I know that when I run that, I'm gonna get a full stand of germinated, you know, direct sown crops. Um that yang, we trialed it a little bit. Um I think there's just a different learning curve on it, but you know, it's it's really light. Um and I don't necessarily like that. Um I've never used an earthway. Um for direct zone crops, I don't find that to be as clean as the planter junior and then, for transplanting, we are gonna invest in uh in just the wheel punches just to mark everything out, so we can then transplant but this year, we just kind of did everything by hand, just a hoary hoary and someone dropping and someone transplanting um but you know we get pretty fast on that. We're trying to figure out a couple of those things every year that we can. Purchase or do to make make things a little bit more efficient. Um, so something like the transplanting, for example, like you know we did almost ten thousand transplants over the course of three, four, five days in the spring. Um, something like uh, water wheel transplanter, our soil's a little bit too clay, a little bit too tight. Um, I don't think it would work as well. But if we could just run just dry punches dry wheel punches through just to mark it, mark it out. That would help us with more precise spacing, uh, for cultivation and weeding later. And then just give us something to mark out so we can just be dropping transplants in. And if we can cut time on that, that's, that would be great. Um, we're trying to pick a couple, couple things every year to kind of make the system move a little bit more efficiently and cut our time down, um, to be able to, you know,
0: up our profit a little bit more. Potatoes going in by hand as well. Potatoes go in by
1: hand. Yeah. Um, you know, my girlfriend Mindy and I, we planted that about 1800 pounds of potatoes in about, I think it was like about 10 hours over two days. Um, just dropping them with five gallon buckets. Um, that's another thing that we'd want to improve on. Um, you know, we're on that kind of like four to five acre scale where, I could buy a potato planter. I could buy some of this equipment. It's pretty expensive for some of those things. And it's pretty specialized, especially a lot of that, uh, like, you know, what I consider like commodity growing equipment, um, something that's so specific to potatoes or so specific to garlic or so specific to onions, um, that, that might not be something we deal with for a few years to purchase, but yeah, we do, we do a lot of stuff by hand in
0: the plantings. Yeah. And what are you doing for weed control?
1: Um, quite honestly, we're still trying to figure that out. Um, <laughs> it's it's Last year was a little bit of a nightmare, to be completely honest. Um, our predominant weed is Canada thistle. So not only is it terrible to weed out, but you know it's it's rhizomatous it's underground you know the minute i put a piece of steel into the ground whether that be a disk or a cultivator i make the problem worse um so a lot of it is cultivation of furrows and shoulders with with mechanical equipment on the farm all um we're going to run some small spider wheels and sweeps and that kind of stuff um to do the shoulders and the actual furrow itself for next year We do run little cultivators through the tops of the beds, but it got away from us so fast this spring that we ended up just running hula hoes for a lot of the summer. Um, The thing with the Canada thistle is if we didn't have Canada thistle, we really wouldn't have any weed pressure on the farm. Um, The Canada thistle is one of those things where even on the garlic, we probably weeded that garlic three or four times and the fourth weeding we came in. The Canada thistle over the course of two weeks just was as tall as the garlic. Again, um, you can, it's not, you don't, you're not really getting rid of it. It's just, you're trying to starve it out as best you can not let it go to seed. Um, so that brings us to the point of where we decided to start opening up full fields to be able to rotate the whole farm on. There are some cover, there are some cover crops out there. Like the main thing we're going to experiment is with sorghum Sudan and there's been studies out of Colorado state, Ohio state, Nebraska that are showing that, and I f- wish I could remember the name of the chemical that, um, sorghum Sudan releases, but basically when sorghum Sudan gets mowed, gets water stressed, heat stressed, um, or frost stressed, it can release a chemical in the ground that is shown to reduce populations of Canada thistle.
0: So we're
1: so we're hoping with planting like a triticale or rye in the fall, letting that go through the spring, incorporating that, planting the sorghum Sudan, mowing that, letting it grow back, mowing it again, then planting rye again. We're hoping we can reduce the population of Canada thistle in our field by, even if we're doing it by 50% every two years, that will give us a big jump on on that, pre- that weed pressure. Because, you know, I've been looking at a lot of these, you know, we're thinking about getting a finger weeder. We're thinking about all these things, but I'm curious about how some of these mechanical weeding tools will work on a, basically a perennial crop, perennial weed pressure. Um, I know they'll work well on annuals, you know, like your lamb's quarter and your amaranth and things that are small and weak as they're coming up that I wonder how they would do on mallow. Um, you know, on Canada thistle, on some of these things that are really held in the ground pretty tight.
0: Yeah. And especially for something like the Canada thistle, where the, those rhizomes are actually feet underground, not inches, you know, so it's really hard to get in and, and disrupt the where it's actually storing its energy. So really you're, you're looking at the only option being to starve them out.
1: Yeah. And so that's the sorghum sudan that I forget, I wish I remember the name of the chemical, but the chemical it's released does have a negative effect on the thistle reproduction. But also if you can grow up a canopy, a cover crop that's tall enough, you can actually, the other good thing to do with the thistle is to starve out its carbohydrate buildup. So it's kind of a one, two punch. You're both kind of like killing it in the soil, and starving it from actually being able to store any carbohydrates to then further put those back into the root system. So we're, we're hoping it can work. I mean, it's it's pretty gnarly.
0: Good luck with that. I, I know that I've had good luck. Not I didn't use the sorghum sudan. I used a, a winter rye and hairy vetch mix to starve out the yeah. thistles. And I had very good luck with that. And I've, I've certainly heard good things about the stand grass I guess this is another thing that's kind of nice about the model that you've got is, I mean, obviously having a field full of weeds is problematic, but having a field full of salad greens and weeds is um, a disaster.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think that was almost a polite way of saying that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, dealing dealing with those... Um high six, high succession crops with weed pressure like this is a nightmare to say the least for sure.
0: You said you're selling you're selling your produce into into Telluride and into into Durango. Now Telluride's a tourist community. Durango is not a very big town. Um what kinds of outlets are you moving your produce through?
1: Um let's see. Durango's population I think is about eighteen thousand. Um Still, pretty heavily tourist economy. I mean, not like not to the extremity that Telluride is, or say Aspen or Vale, or somebody else, somewhere else like that. We sell to uh, that taqueria I mentioned earlier, Zia Taqueria. We sell to a few other restaurants in the region that are more kind of mid scale fine dining. and I sell to the Durango Natural Foods Co-op and another place called Nature's Oasis which is just another kind of grocery store a little bit larger. Um and then we also sell to the school district. Um so predominantly it's restaurant sales with a little bit of front end retail and the school district comprises only about 5-10% mm, of my sales annually.
0: What kind of split, you know, when you talk, you know, wholesale versus retail sales? How's that dividing off on your farm? Um so we we
1: dropped out of market this year, um, which was one of the most nerve wracking and also one of the most awesome things I think I've ever decided in my life, farming wise. Um it was a big risk because you don't get that cash flow that you get every Saturday or every Wednesday. Um you don't get to interact with the other farmers and growers. There's a lot of things you miss. Um But we found that we're able to spend a ton more time on the farm and just not be so stressed out. I mean, I think there's a perception from the consumer that we all kind of show up to market on a Saturday and we're all caffeinated and happy. And then we leave and go home. And I, I think what people miss is that It took a ton of work on that Thursday and Friday to get there. We had to wake up earlier than even we usually do to get there. And then by the time we come home Saturday afternoon, we were off the farm for 12 to 24 hours and we have to basically play catch up all the way through, uh, Saturday and Sunday. And then it's Monday again (laughs) and everything kind of starts up all over again. So we dropped that kind of like actual, that true retail of, you know, your name on the stand and your face at the market kind of sales. And a lot of the restaurants now, it almost feels like a little bit retail. Our names are on the menus. Um, our names and logos are on the produce produce being sold at, uh, both the grocery stores we sell to. Um, so we still have some recognition. Our prices are pretty much the same for that. It's just kind of a standard wholesale price across the board for the restaurants and for um, the two grocery stores we sell to in Durango. Um, and we do, we can and do fetch a, a little bit higher dollar in Telluride, um, but it's really not too much different. You're talking like 5 to 10% uh, markup. And that more has to do with the fact that that market is about 180 miles round trip and Durango is only 60 miles round trip.
0: Right. Quite a bit of difference for you guys.
1: Quite a bit. Yeah, especially coming this time of year where it's, you know, we have to go over a pass to get to Telluride. So we have to, even with CSA and stuff, we'll we'll actually change that to a certain day in the week, just in case, you know, if there's, there's going to be a foot of snow and it's going to take us five hours to get up there, we'll change that.
0: Well, and I suppose one of the advantages of being in the mountains and dealing with small towns is that everybody's used to that. You know, you, they know that there are times when your stuff's just not moving.
1: Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah, they totally understand that. I mean, especially for all the restaurants and people that work here and live here. I mean, I do the same thing with Durango. I mean, if the weather's going to be totally crappy, I'm going to be like, okay, I'm either going to come in a day early or a day late. Um, and they're usually fine with that because when the weather's doing things, that it affects who's coming into their restaurants and how their shopping habits in, in those towns as well. So.
0: so how many times a week are you delivering a product?
1: We are delivering in the peak of summer – uh, I go to Durango Tuesdays and Fridays and my girlfriend Mindy goes to Telluride every Wednesday. Um, and now in the fall, once all the hot crops are done and everything's kind of in storage, um, we still go to Telluride on the Wednesday. And then I go to once a week in Durango on a Friday. Um, mainly cause I'm not dealing with anything perishable. Um, you know, the zucchini's done all the things that, wouldn't necessarily hold or people would be running through really fast and need two deliveries twice a week. Um, when I'm dropping off just potatoes, garlic, onion, winter squash, uh, restaurants can usually bulk up for those kind of items. And then after Thanksgiving, it usually kind of goes a big Thanksgiving delivery and then one or two deliveries before the holidays. And then come in January, it's kind of can be pretty hit or miss, but I still try to come in once a week on a Friday.
0: You still going to keep delivering those rutabagas until you, until you sell them all? I I hope so.
1: (laughs) So we'll still be, we'll still be selling potatoes, rutabaga and winter squash all the way through the
0: month of January. Oh, really? Even the winter squash, because that's a hard crop to store. Yeah.
1: So I grow, um, kind of a really weird and unique winter squash. When I was down in New Mexico, in Northern New Mexico, there's a traditional squash down there. Just people call it a Hubbard. Um, it was grown on the Pueblos down there. It was grown by the Spanish when they were there hundreds of years ago. Um, and, uh, Puebloans and also Hispanos who still live in those regions still raise this winter squash. So I've been saving seed on it for about seven years. It's kind of looks like a blue Hubbard. It's got a lot of different other colors and genetics in it, but, you know, we actually I pulled some seed to save some seed out of ones from the 2015 season last week that we're still holding. Um, yeah, they've, they're, they've just adapted over hundreds of years in kind of this drier high elevation, minimal water climate. I mean, the skins on them are really thick. The meat on it is really thick and the seeds are really big. Um, they take longer to cure. I sun cure them outside for about six to eight weeks um with heavy tarps there for night so they don't freeze um but they'll store really well i'll be i'll we'll, we'll sell out every year and we'll be selling all the way through sometimes march and april um with this winter squash and we have very minimal loss on
0: this crop tell me about the storage facilities that you have
1: um one of them is my house <laughs> um, we store the winter squash and the onions in a spot in my house because we don't have, we haven't got to the point where we have built all the infrastructure for proper storage. Um, we have a eight by 12 walk-in cooler that's running on a cool bot that keeps all the root veggies in there. I lease a root cellar space at the old fort in Hesperus, which is about 15 miles away to store all the potatoes. And we put about 16,000 pounds of potatoes over there, Um, a few months ago and I rent that storage facility for about $75 a month. So it cost me three, three to $400 to keep stuff over there. And I basically have that time. So when I go do my deliveries in Durango once a week on my way back, I pick up potatoes from that storage facility, bring them back to sort, grade and wash to then sell the next week. Um, so I'm not making an extra trip. I rent another walk-in cooler about a mile down the road for all the cabbage, and I just recently purchased another ten by twelve walk-in cooler that we're going to build out for next year. Um, and we have kind of big plans for next year regarding post-harvest and storage facility. If if you don't mind hearing those, We'd love to. Um. So I know there's a lot of talk these days about all the you know food safety modernization Acts, all the gaps. Protocols and standards that are coming into play, and been working on some of the food safety stuff in our region. Um, and what we kind of decided to do this fall is we're working with our loan officer to pull out some equity to basically build a 30 by 40 foot steel structure that will hold walking cooler kind of root cellar space, and then build a post harvest wash station and packing shed that we can then get our GAP certification on Um, so we're trying to get multiple birds with one stone with this, this idea. Um, but with a lot of these gap things coming down the pike, I know that a lot of people are saying, you know, well, I only grow a third of an acre or I'm, I'm, I'm underneath the quarter million dollar exemptions or the half million dollar exemptions. But what I've been hearing from working with national young farmers coalition and Rocky mountain farmers union is that though, a lot of us might be exempt from a lot of this gap and FISMA, um, standards that they're putting in place that the rumor on the street is that they think they might be putting them on the buyer. So basically I know buyers in my area that have in their liability contracts and their insurance policies for their restaurants that they should be purchasing off uh, farms that abide by good agricultural practices. So, so we're trying to kind of beat that to the punch. So even though we'd be exempt technically um, I worry that in three to four years that Unless we have, you know, our GAP certification, we won't be able to sell on the wholesale market. And the wholesale market outside of our CSA is basically what we do. Um,
0: yeah, because it's it's one thing to deal with the regulations, but it's another thing to deal with the marketplace. You know, and correct. so yeah. that's that's really what you have to pay attention to.
1: Yeah. So we're hoping to build this facility and, you know, move some of the storage out out of the house um, and make things a little bit more streamlined. We're also going to work towards our organic certification next year as well.
0: And and so you guys have been getting by without the organic certification to date? Yes, we have. Are you basically growing organically? (sighs) Yes, I yeah, I believe I
1: don't think we do anything. I mean, we sometimes use non-organic seeds, if especially if the organic ones are cost prohibitive, um, but we don't use any chemicals or pesticides. Um, we do spray BT, but that's on the OMRI list. All of our soil mixes we use are on the OMRI list. Um, and I, we've been here three years, so the certification process shouldn't be too much of a hassle, but we pretty much use organic practices. Um, I think what... Our motivation is that we don't think our customers care, quite honestly. It's such a small community, but getting our gap and getting our organic cert basically means that we can sell anywhere to whoever we want and not have any restrictions. So if I wanted to raise three acres of cabbage down the line and get that into the city market King Supers in our region, I can. You know, if I wanted to sell certified organic stuff to the natural grocer that only buys stuff that's certified organic, I can. Um, And then I won't have any trouble down the line selling to the school district if, you know, I feel like they're going to be some of the first ones to really require the good agricultural practices. So it's more of a a thing to remove any barrier that could be there, even though our business model is fine um, right now
0: right kind of staying ahead of the curve
1: yeah totally which is you know not something i've really pondered until purchasing this property and really everything kind of settling in i mean the marketing has gotten easy the the growing has gotten a little bit easier um and we're at a point where the farm and the business are profitable and relatively easy to manage and now instead of scrambling to make changes we're just making adjustments in the business model and in the practices to make things a little bit more streamlined or a little bit more easy we're not worried about can we make money or will we will we make money if that makes sense
0: totally makes sense i'd actually like to ask you some more questions about that when we come back from our break sounds great all right so we're going to take this this moment to go get a word from our sponsors and then we'll be right back with mike nolan from mountain roots produce in mancus colorado Perennial support for the Farmer to Farmer podcast has been provided by Vermont Compost Company, makers of living potting soils for organic growers since 1992. In the Transplant Greenhouse, all of your investment in plant material, heat, labor, and overhead depend absolutely on the performance of the media where you expect your plants to grow. And that media has a really hard job to do, produce a healthy plant in just a few cubic centimeters of soil. When I started farming, I focused on getting the cheapest ingredients I could to make my own potting soil and later on finding cheap potting soil already put together. But I found out what so many farmers have, that saving money on inputs doesn't always result in increased profits. Jennifer at Vermont Compost can tell story after story of customers who switched to less expensive options, but who have come back to Vermont Compost for the consistency and the quality of their potting soils. And even though it's not all about saving money, Vermont Compost's Fall Pre-Buy program can help you get what your plants need at the best price with the best shipping options. Don't miss out. Vermont Compost fall pre buy program runs September 21st to December 21st. Taking care of growers by taking care of transplants since 1992. VermontCompost.com. Additional support for this episode provided by Farmers Web, software for your farm. Farmers Web brings greater efficiency to how you work with your buyers, saving you time and increasing the number of buyers your farm can work with overall. Use this software to inform your buyers about your farm, your product availability, and delivery days and zones. You can also enforce order minimums, lead times, and more. With Farmers Web, your customers can place their orders online, or you can take their orders in other ways and enter them in yourself. You can define payment terms for different buyers, give select buyers special pricing, and generate pick lists, packing slips, and product catalogs for your customers. You can keep track of payments that you receive by check or COD, or buyer payments by credit card go right into your bank account. Farmers Web can even help you coordinate deliveries with neighboring farms. A flat monthly fee means that no amount of orders or number of buyers affects your costs, and you can pause, cancel, or switch plan types from month to month at any time, even during the off-season. There is no annual commitment. Farmers Web is available to farms, farmer cooperatives, and local food artisans nationwide. FarmersWeb.com And we're back with Mike Nolan from Mountain Roots Produce in Mancus, Colorado. Mike, um, before we went on break, I said I wanted to come back and talk about profitability because you said, you know, you're running a a profitable operation. So tell us a little bit about the finances at Mountain Roots Produce. Well, what would you like to know exactly? Well, let's start with your gross sales. I mean, how many vegetables are you selling?
1: Um, diversity wise, we're probably selling pretty high diversity, about 30 plus different varietals or different crops. Um, the sheer majority of the farm is potatoes, cabbage, um, let's see onions, and then some root veg. So rutabaga, turnip, carrot, beet.
0: Yeah. And if you put that into a dollar figure, how much are you guys selling in a year? Um, We're selling about. I think this year we're still crunching our
1: numbers because we're still making sales right now. I think we're going to be sitting at about eighty to ninety thousand dollars gross, um, and I think we're walking away with about forty to fifty percent of that. Um, we're in this mode of spending quite a bit of money on infrastructure and equipment right now, um, but it's just in the last couple of years, you know, buying this property really helped like actually paying a mortgage instead of a land lease, um, and starting to have ownership of some of the equipment and really Chris, the big thing that changed for me a couple of years ago was being, uh, there seems to be an aversion to debt, um, amongst a lot of growers especially like with, with a lot of the things we have to purchase, which is why I think, you know, the John Martine kind of model is reasonable because it's not asking you to make a $20,000 purchase. It's, you know, a three and a half thousand dollar BCS, which is a lot different. Um, I feel like I've become comfortable with going into smart debt, basically, working with my loan company, which is American Ag Credit, which is treating me really well, and being able to be like, okay, I can buy a twelve thousand dollar primary tillage John Deere, John Deere tractor. Um, I can buy a few thousand dollar flail mower. I can make these purchases and be able to look at projected incomes and all that kind of stuff and make it easier. And also knowing that, you know, it's with some of these purchases and some of this, what I call like smart debt, it's going to actually make, cut my labor down, which allows me to instead of doing 20 things at 90%, I'm now doing 14 things at their full capacity. If that makes sense. Um, I'm not, I'm not as, frazzled. And that's part of the reason why I love the storage crop model because you know we'll plant out the sheer majority of the farm in a couple week period and it's done. It's planted. It just needs watered and weeded and harvested. And the harvest usually just comes in at one time in one big harvest. Um so you know we're at five acres but there's only about three quarter acre to an acre that we're actually really managing on the day to day to day um when it comes to weed pressure and harvest and the like.
0: You know, the profitability things is always hard to measure, especially when you're in a rapid growth phase, you know, when you're making those investments and and cash flow can be tight. Are you working off the farm or are you making your entire living here?
1: Um, As of last year, um, I'm not working off the farm anymore. Um, So it took me nine years (laughs) to be able to do that. Um, I still do a lot of other smaller things on the side, um, I help run a farm incubator training program about 20 miles away that I teach classes for. Um, I teach classes with Colorado state and the La Plata County extension office for master gardener programs and the like. Um, but all of that, those sort of Classes that I teach and the payments I get have just become bonus in the last 18 months as opposed to a necessary source of income. I mean, I used to work at a bakery, I used to prune trees, I used to shovel snow, I used to do anything I could to be able to make it through the winter. And it's only in the last 18 months where it's gotten comfortable enough to do that. And having my girlfriend uh, Mindy move down here and us kind of joining forces has also been a great benefit, as you know, that it's accelerated the process of being economically viable. Yeah.
0: So when, when you talk about joining forces with Mindy, um, tell me a little bit about that. Are you guys, do you own the business together? How does that work?
1: So we kind of did a trial period um, to basically make sure that we could do this and still love each other at the end of the year. <laughs> Cause we were, you know, Merging relationships, working business together, running businesses, um, living together—everything. It was—it's a lot right off the bat, and I think we did great. We had a really great season, um, but this year, what we did is that Mindy ran all of her stuff up in Telluride under her farm, which was Early Bird Gardens, and I ran everything over in Durango under my farm name, farm name, Mountain Roots Produce. So we had two different businesses running off the operation, and what we did was anything that was going to benefit both the businesses, um, finishing, finishing the the NRCS greenhouse we got last year, um, irrigation stuff, any of those kind of things we split the cost on. Um, and anything that seemed to be more something that was more personal or that I really wanted that wasn't really needed. (laughs) Um, we would kind of take those on personally as our personal businesses. Um, but right now we're in the process of, merging the business. Um, we think that will simplify things a lot further for both of us because we're about to take on a lot more uh debt in building out some of these structures and building the wildlife fence around the property and making all these kind of big adjustments and big changes. So we're gonna merge businesses for next year and just keep on chugging along. But that was we thought a really smart thing to do is kind of run our own separate businesses. And I think uh if I recall correctly, I think that was the first question her dad asked her. And the first question my dad asked me <laughs> we <laughs> when we told them that was going on last winter, which, you know, it's, it's smart advice. I mean, merging everything right off the bat, it's not simple. I mean, we're, we're going to meet with an accountant. Uh, Minnie knows, has some friends, some lawyer friends up in Telluride that are going to give us some advice as well, but you know, it's it's not it's not simple to dissolve one business, merge it in another business. We have all these assets. We have multiple things each company is depreciating. Um, we're about to be building out a bunch of infrastructure.
0: So I'm curious, you know, you and Mindy joining forces. I mean, Mindy from her farm, you've got your farm. You guys mash it all up together. How has that gone?
1: You know, it's really interesting you ask that because, you know, we've had friends jokingly request that we – do a presentation at a conference about it um but it's to be honest it was really challenging um it wasn't just like we were a couple moving in together and we both had nine to five jobs and we were out of the house five days a week or you know doing that kind of stuff or had schedules where we would each have alone time during the day um it was really challenging you know it's I think we survived it and did really well. We really had to work on our communication, being transparent about what we need. I think we both had to work on kind of letting go because what you had here, it's like I know a lot of the farmers around here, it's we're all we're all alphas for the most part. You know, we're to a certain degree, also kind of ego driven. And just in the sense of like, it takes a lot to be able to run a farm, do your marketing, take financial risk, lease property, own property. There's so many, the job of being a farmer is so multifaceted, um, that it takes a pretty strong, strong personality to be successful. And we were both successful before we met each other. Um, but we figured we'd get, give it a shot. And, You know, there's, there was rough patches, there was great patches. And I think we're figuring out ways to move forward that will make things better, um, regarding how we run the businesses, you know, merging the businesses first off, um, realizing that, you know, having a employee is going to be beneficial, not just to the farm and not just to our mental health and physical health, but to our relationship as well, because it'll take some burden off of the farm. Um, and yeah, I I think it went really well. It was it was a I think a risk for both of us, an experiment for both of us, and you know I think at the end of the day we learned a lot and we love each other dearly.
0: Mike, I'm curious if there are, if there's anything that you guys have have done, any systems that you put in place. I mean, either formal or informal, or or specific changes in approach that you've made based on those those rough spots or or based on the good spots. But things where you've gone like Okay, we're going to do this differently with some intention.
1: Yeah, so I think two of the big things for me um, have been basically figuring out a space to being open to having somebody help you and being able to like be like, okay, I need help on this. Um, <laughs> which is kind of a big, which which is a big deal because I, both of us had been doing stuff by ourselves for so long. Um, that was kind of a big thing of just being open for both of us being able to be open to be like, okay, I need help on this. I can plug in on this. Um, you know, there's a big thing of just kind of letting each other find each other's specialties and letting those individuals run with it. So like irrigation, for example, and greenhouse management are two great things. Um, I didn't pick a single tomato and I don't know if I'll ever pick a tomato on this farm ever. Um that's what Mindy does and she'll do it better than I ever will. And so I don't really go near that even though the the business reaps the benefit off of it. And then irrigation-wise, I run a lot of the irrigation on the farm. There's a little bit of drip that Mindy runs as well, but I I move the sprinklers, I move the side rolls. I run the irrigation, I deal with the water issues and do that kind of stuff. So I think one of the things we realized this year is to mitigate any, any miscommunications or anything. And also to work on the the good things is to really find those specialties. Like we both don't need to be doing everything the same all the time. Like we really need to kind of divide and conquer. And I think as year as the years go by, we'll, those things, those specialties will kind of figure themselves out a little bit more. Um, But that's, that's been a really big help is like, okay, I'm gonna, I'm on irrigation and I'm just dealing with irrigation for the whole day. And, you know, many will be like, well, I'm in the greenhouse and I'm going to go print tomatoes and we'll be on the same farm, but we won't see each other for most of the morning or most of the day, which having personal space is super beneficial. You know, because we live together and work together, so finding those moments where we can be alone and still be productive is is stellar and really great.
0: How do you guys plan out your weeks and days together?
1: Um, you know, it's uh, it kind of just turns into a blur, and I feel like you wake up and there's snow on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Fair uh, enough. Yeah, but, but really, we the uh, the delivery schedule is a thing that kind of defines the rest of the week. So as we kind of get into the real time of kind of picking crops, you know, there's certain things like the green beans, the zucchini, which we need to be after every 36 hours, 48 hours. Um, But then, you know, I'm making phone calls on Mondays, delivering on Tuesdays. Mindy's making phone calls on Mondays, delivering Wednesdays. I'm making phone calls on Thursdays and delivering Fridays. So we kind of work the harvest around that and work all of the weeding and weed management around that and that's one of the awesome benefits about not going to market is that we get our weekends back to prepare ourselves properly for the week because when we had market going before that regular delivery schedule didn't change you know we were just going to market on the saturday and Dropping that this year made it so everything kind of opened up. So instead of Sunday turning into this kind of burnout day from market where you still need to get stuff done and Saturday afternoon being absolutely shot, we're able to stay on top of irrigation, which I think we did a lot better than I have done in years. Stay on top of weeding, which I think we did better than we have done in years. Um, and just generally being able to hang out a little bit more. You know, Sunday didn't feel as much of a crazy day. We could go out to the bakery in the morning and have that breakfast and still get a lot done and not be burnt out for market and go into Monday with that schedule of just kind of running through. But our season's so short and so compact that it just, all of a sudden it's like, I feel like you go from first gear to fifth gear really fast. And then all of a sudden it freezes and it'll start snowing and you downshift really fast as well. Yeah. You
0: know, Yeah. Kind of life in the mountains.
1: Yeah, which is which is great. I mean, our you know, our main priorities this winter are to you know, grow cross country skiing and cook a lot of food and kind of prep for next year and just sell through the food we have left.
0: That was something I wanted to ask you about was your your labor situation, but it sounds like you and Mindy have been doing all of the work. We do a lot of it. We definitely had help this summer.
1: Um we had some couple friends in Durango that um are you know one's a nurse one works at the college and they had free time this summer so they came and helped help helped us out with some weeding and other things like that um but we're finally you know it's it's i see it all the time in a lot of the farms around here and when i meet other farmers from across the country having that leap of just having help when you need it to the benefit of having you know we're going to have somebody here From mid-April through mid to late October, 40 hours a week, W-2'd employee that's going to be able to be here from when some of the first transplants are going in to when some of the last crops are coming out. And just having someone that's going to be able to see everything is really invaluable. When you have people coming in and out throughout the summer it's, I feel like it's sometimes it turns into two minute cooks in the kitchen. Like if I have to train somebody on doing something, I mean, I'm going to be fast. Mindy and I are going to be faster than almost anyone we bring on. So if I have to actually decrease my productivity because there's two people here, not really getting the full benefit of it. So I see a lot of farms contemplating how to do that thing where it's like, you've got slim profit margins. Can you afford to pay somebody $10,000, $12,000 for a full season, uh, to be able to come in and work with you. And will that make your business more profitable or will it make your quality of life better? And we've kind of come to that conclusion this year is that we don't want to work ourselves into the ground. Um, we want to work hard and we don't mind working 12, 14 hours a day, but we want to work smart. Like we want, we don't want to do silly, stupid things all day and burn ourselves out. Um, we want to maintain a quality of life where we're happy and healthy physically, but also emotionally. Um, and I think getting to that, getting to that point, part of that was becoming financially stable on the farm first. And then now that we've kind of got that in check and we know we can do it now, it's like, okay. Okay taking time off or, you know, making sure that we stop work every evening to make dinner before 1030 at night, you know, and making sure we're, you know, eating the food we're growing, which I know a lot of farms that you'll have an eight couple acres of produce in the summer and you're eating DiGiorno pizza, nice. so, <laughs> which I've done many a time. I've so I've
0: been there, done that too. So it,
1: it, which is kind of, it's kind of amazing, isn't it? It's like you spend all this time working the stuff and selling this beautiful product, but you know, your quality of life is failing because you're not able to cook and find time to take care of yourself, which we really want to make a big change in that this
0: year. So what are you doing to get ready for having an employee next year? Quite honestly, not much right now.
1: <laughs> um, we had her come out last year and work for work for us for a couple of days. Uh, she worked at the farm incubator site down the road. Um, but with regards to preparations, our main preparations is working with an accountant to figure out, you know, all the workers' comp, all the rigmarole of actually hiring an employee um, is what we're trying to do. Like, we don't want a 1099, this individual. We want them to be an employee. And it's a motivation for us to also put ourselves on the payroll for the first time and actually start paying ourselves, even if it's very minimally, but start having that transfer from the business to our personal. Um, so that's, that's, that's the main preparation. And then I think it's going to be a little bit of working it out with her throughout the season. Um, as she kind of comes in, I mean, she, she really wants to learn, which is great, so we're going to be able to bring her in when we start the tomatoes in February, March and have her help out here and there and have her help out with the starts and that kind of stuff. And then kind of, we'll just kind of hit the ground running in mid April. And I think she knows that this is our first time going around with this. And this is her first time as well, work, working on a farm like this. So I think we're pretty comfortable with each other to work it out together. But right now it's just figuring out how does it, work legally and on paper like what do we need to do with the state of colorado and the feds to be able to hire an employee which is all new to us right now
0: when we when we started off our conversation we did talk about how you're basically growing stuff in the desert can you tell us a little bit about your irrigation system yeah definitely
1: um I mean, I would love to even just do a whole other podcast on talking about water in the West. I think that'd be really fun.
0: <laughs> but, I'll tell you what, water in the West is a—it's it, a crazy thing. I farmed in—I farmed on the california nevada state line, and 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 that was, you know, that was one thing. I farmed again in Santa Barbara, or worked on a farm in Santa Barbara. That was crazy water-wise. And by the time it came time to settle, uh, it was one of the reasons why I settled on a farm in the Midwest was because water in the West is just nuts.
1: It's crazy. I mean, can I talk about it for a few yeah, minutes? I'm going to give a little bit of history. Yeah. Um, so our water rights in the Mesa Valley are some of the oldest in the state of Colorado. Um, when I bought my property, you know, I have basically a little deed that comes along with it. My water rights date back to the 1880s. Um, and the system is, so amazingly convoluted and complicated. I'm still learning about it to this day, about how it all works. But it's not like we just have a well we can pull out of. It's not like I just have um, water I can just turn off and on. I mean, basically, we have two different sources of water. We have the Mancus River, which runs on a priority system. And Every single property in the Mancus Valley has a priority number attached to that, one being the highest and 62 or 64 being the lowest. Those numbers are adjusted every day, if not multiple times a day. Uh, our priority number is 14, so I might drive to town in the morning to go get a burrito or a cup of coffee, and the priority will be at 17, meaning I have water, and I'll come back an hour later, and the priority be at 12, which means my water is being cut off right now. <laughs> so... That system was set into place in the 1880s, and that's how a lot of the irrigation systems in Colorado work. It's basically a priority water system based on the, uh, the river flows and the snowpack runoff that's coming into the river systems. We then have a secondary source of water, which is Jackson Lake, and that is basically an acre foot of water for every acre you own on your property. And a lot of these are kind of pooled with other properties adjoining your property, So we have a pipeline and just to go to what our, our system is, we have high pressure underground uh, pipeline that has risers about every 90 to a hundred feet on one edge of the property. So I have high pressure water that's running at about 60 to 80 PSI when I have water. Um, But we pool all that with all of our neighbors so that when we get cut off off the river, we can just call for, say, a third of a CFS, and that should get us through most of the season. And when we call for that small amount of water, which we have to communicate which with the main ditch rider on another ditch who then communicates that with the lake operator twice a week, we can then tease that water by coordinating with all the other farms and properties on our pipeline so that all of us get all our water needs met that's not enough water for everyone on this pipeline to run everything at any time, but we basically be like, okay, I'm, I'm going to be running water in at night, which I traditionally run water at night. I don't run it during the day. A lot of the hay people will be running it off and on, maybe running six hour sets during the day and six hours at night. Um, some people just use the irrigation water for lawns and for watering animals. Um, so it just takes out here. It's just takes a lot of coordination. Um, And the really big thing that we're dealing with every year is that I don't know what my water situation is going to look like until May 1st or
0: May 10th every year. And so I'm already... When you say your water situation, what does that mean? I mean, are you you talking like how much you're going to have to grow with over the course of the summer? Correct.
1: Yeah, so we don't really know where we're going to be sitting until early May. And that's basically when they tell you how much of your allotment is going to come out of the lake, because if you don't have a good snow year, the lake's not going to fill. And if the lake doesn't fill, then you will only get a percentage of your total allotment. So say, hypothetically, we have a hundred acre feet of water on this pipeline, but the board that runs Jackson Lake, if they say, okay, we're in a drought year, you're only, only getting 50% of your allotment. It means we only get 50 acre feet out of that hundred for this season. Um, and then, so we kind of monitor, I can tell through monitoring snow tell data, um, which gives us, uh, moisture content in the snowpack up in the high country. I can kind of tell what's going on with how the river's going to run, but we know, won't know about our lake water or reservoir water until sometime in early May. So it's really, sometimes it can be hard. I mean, we're definitely making, excuse me, purchases. And starting starts and doing a lot of work with the possibility of our water might run out in mid-August, you know, our water might get shut off sometime in late July, and then we just have to kind of pray for monsoons to carry us over. Um, so it's really tricky. And a lot of growers in the mountain West deal with that. And the thing is, is the way the priority systems work change from watershed to watershed and from irrigation district to irrigation district. Um, so I know you had like Zephyros farm on a few podcasts ago, a few months ago, you know, the way their water comes down is the same thing. It can be kind of a crapshoot, but the way their system runs is completely different than our system. So it doesn't necessarily translate from valley to valley. It's still the same issue of whether or not you'll have water and how much and when. Um, so yeah, that's a little bit of background on kind of what we deal with water wise out here. But to answer your first, your main question of what our water system looks like, we use drip irrigation on all of our, what we consider high risk crops. So that would be all of our salad mixes and spinaches and stuff that we just sell to the CSAs. And then for the most part, we run overhead irrigation on pretty much the whole entire rest of the farm.
0: Okay. Because when you say you're high-risk crops, you're talking about from a food safety standpoint because all of your water is surface water.
1: Correct. All of our water is surface water. So we don't really want to apply that surface water onto what, you know, the FDA and FISMA considers extremely high-risk crops. And that's not anything we're required to do. It's just something, like we were talking about earlier, about building this packing shed and going through the whole gap rigmarole. It's more like... It's just a preventative measure right now. Like we don't we don't really even want to mess with it. We actually don't think there's too much of an issue with the volume of water that's coming through our system, but it's just one of those things where we might as well put the protocol in place now.
0: Yeah, again, staying ahead of the curve. I mean, that seems to be kind of a theme for you guys. Yeah, we're we're doing we're doing our best, for sure. So Mike, you mentioned earlier that you were involved with the National Young Farmers Coalition. Could you talk a little bit about what you're doing with them?
1: Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm the president of the Four Corners Farmers and Ranchers Coalition here, which is a joint chapter between Rocky Mountain Farmers Union and Nash Young Farmers Coalition. Um, and we do... Basically, a lot of policy work and a lot of education work. You know, some of that stuff is around Food Safety Modernization Act and GAP and good agricultural practices. Um, It's coordinating meetings with our local representatives. It's doing work in D.C. on state policy, like our Cottage Foods Act and that kind of stuff. And in the future, we're going to be doing a lot of stuff on the farm bill. And we're going to be going to D.C. doing lobbying and doing workshops regionally about what the farm bill is and how it affects you. Um and you know, I just want to put it out there, I know there's a lot of folks in a lot of different regions of this country, but accessing things like your farmers union, National Young Farmers Coalition, your conservation districts, anything like that, I just highly recommend younger beginning growers to kind of plug in to those sort of things because there's awesome opportunities to advocate for yourself beyond your own farm um and policy that can and will affect you on your farm um so it's been really beneficial for me it's kind of what i what my winter work has turned into is a lot of meetings and a lot of conference calls and that kind of stuff but it's really enjoyable i feel like i'm not just um having an effect on my local food system with the way i grow product around here um but i feel like i'm having a voice further out of my region both in denver and in dc
0: mike i agree absolutely it's I know it was a huge, a hugely important part of my farm, especially in the early years. Was was being an activist just because it got me in contact with other people and helped me know the rest of the totally. industry. And that that in and of itself, regardless of anything that I accomplished um, or that the groups that I was involved with accomplished, that was worth it right there. Just just getting the you know getting the names and the faces and 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 having those contacts that went really widely in the community was fantastic.
1: Yeah, I I totally agree. Just getting out there and getting to know everybody. I mean, you know, some of your best resources are are your neighbors and the old-time ranchers and farmers out there. I mean, even if they're raising something completely different than you, it's, you know, they have equipment and skills and stories that we can learn from so we don't have to reinvent the wheel on so much stuff.
0: So, Mike, with that, I'd like to turn to our lightning round. What's your favorite tool on the farm?
1: Oh, goodness. You emailed me this earlier, and I have about 10 tools in my head. Okay, lightning round. I'll go fast. Um, <laughs> my favorite favorite tool I'm in love with right now is a 1930s John Deere B single-disc opener grain drill.
0: That's awfully specific. So what what do you love about it? I know. It? Um, I love about it. I, what I love about it is that so much of the new
1: technology out there is so, I don't know, sparkly and new and high-tech. This thing is from the 1930s. It actually, when you open up the hopper on the top, it gives you all the seeding rates for rye and triticale and oats, and then actually has hemp on there. Um, it's, and it just works wonderfully. It's a beautiful tool to plant cover crop with. It doesn't have any moving parts except for some gears. There's no hydraulic power to it. It's just really simple and gets the job done really well. Um, and I borrow it off a neighbor. And I'm looking to purchase one. And I just, I'm just in love with the simplicity and, and the, uh, just how well made things were, you know, 60, 70, 80, 90 years ago.
0: If you could choose a farmer superpower, what would it be? Farmer superpower, um, the ability to weed things with
1: my mind. Blast the Canada thistle out. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> All right. And your favorite crop to grow? You know, I really love raising potatoes. Um, I've just fallen in love with that crop in the past few years. My learning curve has been really big on it. Um, I have really good mentors, um, Brendan and Sheldon Rocky out of Center, Colorado, that have taught me a lot on it. And I just think it's a beautiful crop that's adapted to our elevation and our climate um, that when pulled off right, there's nothing like a fresh potato out of the ground. So...
0: And what made you decide to become a farmer?
1: I was doing a lot of work, uh, a lot of social justice activism, um, a lot of direct action trainings, uh, nonviolence workshops, and during the early Bush administration. And... uh, I basically got really disheartened and didn't feel like I had a voice. I got kind of burnt out on a lot of stuff. We were doing activism around the Iraq, first Iraq war and stuff like that. And I kind of just, a friend asked me if she, if I would come help her on a farm for a summer outside of Davis, California. And I said, yes. And I kind of realized that farming is the one thing, no matter your race, color, gender identity, political, anything is everyone eats. And the food system is one of the few things out there that touches everybody. And I felt like it was a good way to channel a lot of the work I wanted to do in the world and also be able to work for myself and run a business and really make good change. Even though it's slow, you know, you farm for 10 years, you only do it 10 times. It's a lot different than other professions.
0: Yeah, and especially the way you're doing it, you know, growing the storage crops instead of microgreens. You know, you just you just don't get to plant potatoes very often. Nope, nope, I do it. I do it once a year. <laughs> All right. And finally, if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? You know,
1: if I could go back in time, I think I would tell myself not to look at Agriculture and the food system is so black and white, not to look at it as conventional versus organic, you know, GMO versus non GMO or anything like that. That what I've learned in the past 10 years is some of the best farmers I know and some of the most innovation is coming out of people that are just riding kind of that middle ground cusp, not being locked out of a whole set of ideas just because they lie on one side of the agricultural spectrum. Um, you know, we've gained so many things from, you know, large scale agriculture has brought us strip till no till drip irrigation, so many things that we now utilize on the small scale. And I think my younger self was really opposed to really having anything to do with anything on, on scaled up production. Um, and basically I look back at myself and not being necessarily so close-minded to really hearing all sides and hearing when, at what the costs and benefits of everything in agriculture because i think we can all learn
0: from everything on both sides mike thanks so much for being part of the show today thank you so much for having me i really appreciated it all right so wrapping things up here i'll say again that this is episode 98 of the farmer to farmer podcast and you can find the notes for the show at farmer to farmer by looking on the episodes page or just searching for nolan that's n-o-l-a-n Transcripts for this episode are brought to you by Growing For Market. Get 20% off your subscription with the code PODCAST at checkout. And by Earth Tools, offering the most complete selection of walk-behind farming equipment and high-quality garden tools in North America, earthtools.com. You can get the show notes for every Farmer to Farmer podcast in your inbox by signing up for my email newsletter at farmer to farmerpodcastcom If you enjoyed the show, I'd love it if you would head on over to iTunes and leave us a review. You know, We've got 98 reviews on iTunes. My birthday's coming up on Saturday, and i just love to go over 100 reviews for my birthday. You can also talk to us in the show notes. Tell your friends on Facebook. We're at Purple Pitchfork on Facebook.
1: If you think this show's worth the dollar, my dad would love to have it. You can support the show by going to com slash donate. He's working to make the best and podcast in the world, and you can help. A buck a show is all we ask.
0: Finally, please let me know who you would like to hear from on the show through the suggestions form at FarmerToFarmerPodcast.com, and I'll do my best to get them on the show. Thank you for listening, be safe out there, and keep the tractor running.